Well, friends, if you want to take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, if you're looking at the black Bibles in the chairs that you're sitting on or around you, that's found, it should be found on page 901. And let me encourage you to keep your Bible open as we, as we study and read God's Word together. I encourage you to follow along and, and read carefully, listen carefully to what God is saying to us uh, in His Word. For three years, Jesus' 12 disciples walked with Him. They heard Him teach, they heard Him pray, they watched Him care for the hurting and heal the sick and walk on water and even raise the dead. But by the time we come to chapter 13, we witnessed last week a heart-wrenching evening in the upper room. The 12 disciples were gathered with Jesus in the upper room to celebrate the Passover, and it's there at that meal that he told his disciples that one of them would betray him. And that betrayal would lead to his death. And so, because of his death, he was telling them that he would soon leave them. Chapter 13, verse 36 said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. This was disconcerting for these 12 disciples. And so, with his own allegiance to Jesus in question, Peter announced or protested that he wouldn't. He would go with Jesus and he would even lay down his life for him. But chapter 13 ends with Jesus' sober reply. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That's how chapter 13 ends. Peter, deny Jesus? Peter was known as the rock of this group. And so you can imagine the effect that that this that Jesus telling him that he would deny him three times, you can imagine the effect that that would have on the other disciples listening in. If, if, if Peter's faith is shattered, if the, the faith of the rock of the group is shattered, how can they make it to the end? They had left everything to follow Jesus. They would followed him for three years. Is this how it was going to end? In betrayal? In death, and what would appear to be utter failure, all of this would leave the disciples confused. It would leave them distressed. It would leave their hearts burdened with trouble. Had they made a mistake in following Jesus? Where was God in all of this? What was God doing? You ever ask questions like that? Maybe you're asking those questions in your own heart this morning after this past week, this past month, this past two years. Maybe your heart is troubled and confused and burdened this morning. And friends, I just want to say that if that's where you're at, if that's where you've been, John 14 has wonderful news for you this morning. So what is God's remedy for a troubled heart? That's the question we want to ask this morning. What is God's remedy for a troubled heart? If you're taking notes, point number one is this. 
trusting God the Father and in Jesus Christ. Trusting God the Father and in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 14 of our text. So let's look at God's word starting in verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I love how verse one begins. Jesus looks at his troubled disciples and he says, let not. He's reminding these disciples, he's reminding us that if you're in a place where your heart is troubled, you don't have to stay there. God is giving you something to do so that you don't have to let your heart be troubled. What is it that God provides? What is the way out? Believe in God. Believe also in me, he says. The word for believe that he uses is a word that means to trust. In other words, the antidote for an anxious heart is active, ongoing trust. It's not faith in faith. Everybody has faith. And you ask, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe in faith. Well, no, that's not what he's talking about. Everybody has, everybody has faith in something. What Jesus is after is that they trust God the Father, and that they trust Jesus, God's Son. So what is it, what what anxiety-busting truths are they to believe? What is the content that he wants them to believe? Well, just remember the situation that these disciples are facing. They're troubled because they know that Jesus is about to leave them. He's about to go to the cross. And where he's going, they can't come right away. And yet, In verse two, part of what Jesus is doing is reminding them that it's to their advantage that he goes. He says, I go, Jesus says, to prepare a place for you. He prepares this place by going to the cross to take away sin. He's already prepared that place by going to the cross to take away our sin. Jesus is very clear in this point. For all who trust in him, he's saying, there's room for you. If you trust in Christ, if you trust in Christ alone, you will never come to the gates of heaven and see a no vacancy sign. There is a room for you. There is room for you. And Jesus guarantees it. I go and prepare a place for you. Now, now don't get hung up on, on the, the idea of the rooms here. The, the, the focus is not the size of the rooms or how big or how much, what kind of gold the streets are made of or how luxurious the house is. That's not the point. If we get hang up on the house, we're gonna miss the point. What makes heaven, heaven? What makes it paradise is that's where Jesus is and we get to dwell with him. Notice the end of verse three. That where I am, you may be also. That's what makes heaven, heaven. What Jesus is doing is he's he's, he's getting these troubled disciples to look up and to look ahead. Because from our limited perspective, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. You don't know. God knows. And yet even though we don't know what tomorrow holds for us, Jesus 
tells us and guarantees the end for the Christian. And so to, a calm, to calm a troubled heart, we are to trust God with our future. We are to look at today and all of its trials and all of its burdens and all of its sorrows. We are to look at today from an eternal perspective with the end that God is revealing in mind. Friends, Jesus went to prepare a place and he will come again to get us. We sang about that in that, in, in, in that second song this morning when, when we sang, Lord, keep me day by day. Jesus promises to come again. That's the sec- in verse three, that's, that's referring to the second coming of Christ. We Christians long for the second coming of Christ because on that day, Jesus will usher in the new heavens. He will usher in the new earth. He will remove the curse from this broken world and he will wipe away every tear because death and mourning and crying and pain and sin and sorrow will be no more. And so we look forward to that day And we look at that day, that future day, with hope, even in our troubled day today. Verse 4, he goes on. And you know the way, verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus has not been secret about this. He's, he's told his disciples more than once that he would be betrayed, he would be killed, and he would rise again on the third day. If you read through the Gospels, he says that over and over and over before it happens. That's why he can say to them, listen, I've told you over and over and over. That's why he can say in, in verse 4, you, disciples, know the way where I am going. Why? Because I told you. But have you ever been in a conversation with someone when everyone's sitting there listening to a lecture, they're nodding their head, looking very thoughtful and pensive, and in reality, no one knows what that guy's talking about. That's why I love Thomas, because Thomas is not too proud to kind of be like, pretend like he knows what's going on. He's like, now hold on, Jesus. I, I don't know what you're talking about. He admits, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, again, it's not that Jesus has not been clear. He has been clear that the, the, the path to the Father for him is through the cross. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't rocket science. What's difficult for Thomas and the other disciples is that that this is not what they envisioned for the Christ, the King. Friends, sometimes we, we, as his disciples, sometimes we know from the Bible what God has said. We just don't like it. And we need to be careful here. Because if we set our mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man, then accepting God's word can be so difficult that we convince ourselves that God didn't say what he said very clearly in his word. Well, in response, Jesus goes on in verse six and he says, I, says to, to Thomas and the rest of the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but except through me. Friends, that, that is a profound statement in John's gospel. It really sums up a lot of what John's gospel has been teaching us along the way. Jesus is reminding us that he's not a tour guide who is showing the sights. He is our access. He is the door. 
as he said in John 10. He is our access to God, the Father. It's not just that he shows the way, he is the way. And Jesus, as God in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, he, Jesus, uniquely and authoritatively reveals the truth about God the Father to us. He's not just telling us the truth about God, he is the truth. And Jesus is not just the one who sustains life, he's not just really good at CPR. No, those who are united to Christ by faith receive eternal life. They live, we live because he lives. He's not just one who gives life, he is eternal life. That's what he's saying. And notice that when he makes this claim about himself in verse 6, it is an exclusive claim. That's not a typo. He doesn't just say that he's one way among many good options or one truth among many other truths or one, you know, one life among other options. No, he's saying I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if there's any question or doubt about the exclusivity of his claim, he ends verse 6 saying, no one, not some people, no one can come to the Father except through me. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. My non-Christian friend, I'm so glad you're here this morning. You may hear something like this. Maybe you've been looking into Christianity for a while, and you may assume that, that, that there are many roads that lead to God. A lot of people today think that way. And you may struggle with the exclusive claims of Christianity. You may be offended by them. They, might, they may sound arrogant, or they may sound narrow-minded to you. Perhaps that's why you keep Christianity at bay. But let me give you an illustration. If, if we went on the, the roof of this building, you and I, And I told you, you know what, listen, I don't like the truth claims of gravity. I just don't like them. You know, gravity and the truth claims of of John Newton, they kind of seem restrictive. They seem narrow-minded. So I just don't believe it. If I said that to you, you would not be um, hateful for telling me that I'm wrong. You would not be harsh by urging me not to jump because that's the truth. Gravity is true, whether I like it or not. Friends, in the same way, when we read the Bible, we need to remember that we read as all of us, every one of us, read the Bible as sinners. And there are going to be biblical truths because of our sin in our lives that are painful. There are going to be truths that we come across that are uncomfortable, that are difficult for us to to accept. But that doesn't that make sense? If God is God, we should expect to be challenged by his word at times. We should not be surprised by that. We should expect that. God does not come to us and just flatter us and tell us what we already know so that we feel better about ourselves. He tells us the truth. So friend, my encouragement to you is that as you explore the the claims of Christianity, do not reject a truth claim that Jesus makes just because it does not fit your expectations or just because it's difficult or uncomfortable. First, let me encourage you to back up and ask a bigger question. Is the Bible true? 
Is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? Once you answer that question, if, if, if the answer is yes, then Jesus' exclusive claims are true. They're not harsh, they're actually loving. And it helps us to accept those difficult truths more. One book that I would recommend at this point is a book that was written by Greg Gilbert, this little white book, Why Trust the Bible. I have four copies uh, to give away. I'm not gonna give them out now, but if you wanna, if you wanna think about that more, uh, just come see me after service and I would love to give you a copy to, to in, investigate the claims about the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's word. Look at verse seven with me, verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know me. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Friends, again, remember the situation here in, in, in salvation history. Jesus' disciples have just been told that, that Jesus is going to go away, and they're troubled because Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's going to leave them. And again, his death did not fit their expectations for the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to usher in an immediate and glorious kingdom. They didn't expect there to be this in-between period that we're in right now where we're waiting for Jesus to come again. And so as a result, with this new information, this difficult teaching, they would have to trust Jesus. Jesus is telling them this is how it is, this is the truth, didn't fit their expectations. They have to trust Jesus and what he's saying to them. That's why Jesus says in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. You should, you should pause and say, well, why does he not just say believe in God? Why does he also say believe in me? Because he's telling them that what I'm saying to you is what God is saying to you. That matters. You know, if, if we went back to chapter 13 and kind of walked into the upper room and we asked Judas Iscariot, Judas, do you trust God? What would he say? Yes, I'm a Jew. I trust God, I trust Yahweh. But if we follow it up with a second question, Judas, do you trust Jesus? I don't think he did. More than I don't think, I know he didn't. He looked at Jesus and, and Jesus did not fit his expectation for the king and the Messiah. And so much so that he betrayed Jesus. He trusted God, but he didn't trust Jesus. And he thinks that that's okay. And Jesus is saying, you can't have one and not the other. So for the 11 remaining disciples, Judas is now out. He's left the room, like we saw last week. He's out setting up plans to betray Jesus. And so these 11 disciples that are remaining in the upper room, they're still coming to grips with who Jesus is. As God in the flesh, Jesus is revealing God the Father to us. He's the word, God's communication He's the word made flesh. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the, the word of God has made him known. 
And so Jesus reminds them this in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Or as he says to Philip in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Why? Because he's the word that communicates God made flesh. When you see Jesus in the pages of scripture, you see God, what he's like. And so to trust God is to trust Jesus. To not trust Jesus is to not trust God. Friends, Jesus is more than a messenger. He's more than uh, an errand boy for God the Father. John's gospel has been very clear from verse one of chapter one. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God. And yet he's also a distinct person who submits to, relies on, and prays to God the Father. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. Try to wrap your mind around that, good luck. But the Bible presents that's how we are to think about Jesus. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Which brings us to verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That sentence is is both weighty and it is glorious. What Jesus is saying in verse 10 is that what, what he says, the Father says. What he does, the Father does. All the while, the Father and the Son maintaining their unique persons and their unique roles. We Christians believe in one God. We are monotheistic. And yet, this one God is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each distinct from each other, and yet what they do, they do collectively. Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you believe me, you believe the Father. And so the disciples are understandably confused, they're troubled, they are distressed, because Jesus has told them that they're leaving him. And and yet, Jesus is saying, it's to your advantage that I leave, and so they have to trust Jesus. How can they trust Jesus? by remembering who he is, that he speaks the truth to them, that he is reliable. D.A. Carson puts it this way, if only these disciples believe, then the uncertainties surrounding these other large matters will be swallowed up by confidence that Jesus is none other than the revelation of the Father. There is no belief more basic to spiritual triumph than that. And so with that in mind, Jesus encourages disciples by showing who he is, calling them to trust in him, and then in verse 12, he turns his focus. In verse 12, he shows the results of those who trust in him. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right. Don't just gloss over verse 12. Verse 12 is astonishing. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Church, Jesus is saying to us, If you trust in him, 
you will do greater works. That's astonishing, is it not? What does he mean by greater works? I mean, Jesus walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. What does he mean by greater works? Well, to be, to be sure, the apostles, after Jesus died and rose again, the apostles did signs and miracles to prove their apostolic credentials. And to be sure, God can and does still heal today. Still works miracles today. But I don't think that physical miracles is what Jesus has in mind here. By greater works, I think Jesus has the spiritual transformation that will come about in the lives of those who hear the good news. That spiritual transformation is the greater work that will come after his death and resurrection. Just think about it this way. Many of the people that were excited about Jesus, saw his miracles, even experienced his miracles, they followed him during his earthly ministry with a lot of excitement, sometimes with big crowds. But when Jesus came to the end and he went to the agony of the cross, where were those people? Most everyone ditched Jesus, even the 12 disciples. A lot of these apostles, they liked, or a lot, of these, a lot of these followers of Jesus who heard him teach and saw his miracles, they liked Jesus' miracles. They were excited about it. But their heart was not changed yet. And so when, it, when, it, when, it, when the heat got turned up, they were gone. But notice the reason that Jesus gives for the greater works in verse 12. What's the reason? He says, because I am going to the Father. We're going, to see, we're, going to, we're going to see this in greater detail in the second half of, of chapter 14. But when Jesus goes to the Father, he's going to ask the Father, and the Father will then send his Holy Spirit. And as the church, with the help of the Holy Spirit, proclaims the gospel, God's Spirit will raise the spiritual dead. God's Spirit, through the, through the church, will give new hearts. God's spirit through the church will transform people into new creations. Right now, church, we're involved in God doing greater works. That's awesome. Though many followers would abandon Jesus at the cross who are excited about his miracles but have unchanged hearts, history will show that transformed saints whose whose lives were changed by the Spirit of God, would endure torture and mockery and floggings and imprisonment. They will be sawn in two rather than deny Jesus. And this transformation, I think, is evidence of the greater works that Jesus is talking about. What is the means of bringing about this change? It's the Spirit, but, but what are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us in verses 13 and 14. The answer is prayer. Prayer that God will hear, prayer that God will answer because of the access that God has has given, that, that Christ has opened through the cross. Verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some people who are known as prosperity gospel preachers, will take the verses like these, rip them out of their context, and assume that Jesus is saying that if you just have enough faith, you can ask God for anything. You can ask him for wealth, 
prosperity, health, a new Mercedes-Benz. If you just have enough faith, God will give it to you. And people who hear that from these prosperity preachers and believe it will then get angry when God has not come through like they were told. But I want us to be very clear that that's not what Jesus is saying here. Notice in, the, in, in verses 14 and 13 and 14, two times Jesus mentions praying in Jesus' name. What does that mean? Well, one way to think about it is, is this. If, if the President of the United States sends an ambassador to a foreign country, that, that ambassador goes as his representative. That ambassador speaks and acts in the President's name in the president's place in that foreign country. I think that's a good illustration of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in Jesus' place. It means to pray for the things that Jesus prays about. It means to pray about those things the way that Jesus prays about them. That's why when we pray, we pray with our Bibles open. Don't just read your Bible, pray your Bible. Because God's word will show us what to pray about and how to pray about those things. Well, does that mean that if we just pray the right way, if we get the formula right, that we can actually twist God's arm, that we can turn God into this magical genie who will grant our wishes? No, prayer is not a formula that we use to control God, nor is God reluctant to give us what is good. When we pray, God may have us wait. When we pray, God may not give us what we ask for because he will only give us what is good. And waiting and being told not yet or no by God who loves us and is, is committed to our good, even though we know that it's for our good, that can still be difficult. Some of you might be wrestling with that difficulty of waiting right now. But I think this is where Jesus' example is really helpful for us as well. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane in just a few hours, he's an example for us to follow. Right before him in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's anticipating the cross. And so his heart, we're told, is troubled. Just like our hearts get troubled at times. So what did Jesus do? He prays. And in that, in that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane with his troubled heart, he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup the cup of his righteous wrath. May this cup be taken from me. Jesus was honest in his prayers. And he didn't hesitate to ask God for what he was wrestling with. But that's not the only thing he prayed. He also prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. Friends, praying in Jesus' name demands praying with that type of honesty and with that type of humility, the humility to accept God's answer and to trust that he is acting for our good. Church, Jesus is calling us in these verses to be a praying church, to pray in private, to pray with our families and our roommates and our friends, to pray with the church on Sunday, to pray with the church on Wednesdays. We pray on our own. We pray together because this is God's ordained means to change lives, to move mountains, 
and to bring troubled hearts to rest. And we pray because we know that Jesus went to the Father to open up and give us access to God that we can come to him with confidence in our time of need. In verses 1 through 14, Jesus' focus has been on the future. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come and take you so that, and so that you can be with me. It's, it's a future-oriented hope that he gives us in verses 1 through 14. And that future hope of, of Jesus' second coming is a wonderful encouragement. Amen? But what about now? What, what about the time between Jesus' first coming, death and resurrection, and his second coming? What the Bible refers to as the last days, the days that we're in right now. What, what, what's God's remedy for a troubled heart right now? Point number two. Point number two, receive the help of God's spirit. Receive the help of God's spirit. We're gonna see this in verses 15 through 31. Many of us are quick and ready to offer help. Some of us are reluctant to receive help. And I think this is a good uh, correction that we need to receive the help that comes from God's spirit. Look at verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, Jesus is in the upper room. This is known as the upper room discourse. He is about to go to the cross. He's hours away from going to the agony of the cross. And then from there, he will go to be at the right hand of his father. And so he's leaving the disciples who he'd walked with for three years. And they're concerned about that. But what he's saying here is that he will not leave them alone. Once he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus would ask the Father to send another helper. That Greek word for helper is the word uh, paraclete. A paraclete is someone who comes to, a paraclete is somebody who's called to stand alongside another. It's a word that can be translated as a lawyer. That's why you'll see in your ESV footnote, another translation for helper is an advocate. He's a defense attorney. He is, he's there to help and to defend. And so the, the, the Holy Spirit is the Christian's advocate sent by God to be our helper in our time of need. These three verses, 15, 16, and 17, are glorious. And let me just highlight three things we learn about the Holy Spirit in these verses. Number one, the Holy Spirit steps in for Jesus. Holy Spirit steps in for Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm about to go, but I won't leave you alone, right? He's going to the Father, but verse 16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper. It's not, he, he doesn't say, I will ask God to send you a helper. He's saying, I will ask God to send you another helper. In other words, what he's saying is, the Holy Spirit will pick up where Jesus left off. He will pick up the work that Jesus has been doing with the disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, strengthening them, counseling them, helping them. He's going, but he's going to send another helper, another paraclete. 
One of the reasons that that is good for these disciples that Jesus is leaving, one of the reasons that is that, that that's good for us is that Jesus in his earthly ministry was limited by his human body. If he was in Jerusalem, he couldn't be in Maryland simultaneously because of his limitations of his physical body. But when Jesus sends the Spirit, when God sends the Spirit, Jesus can actually be present by the Spirit in Upper Marlboro with the saints in Thailand and the saints in Afghanistan simultaneously and as personally as if Jesus were with that person, that saint, in that room right there. No limitations of a human body. And so it's to their advantage that he goes so that he can be with us this way. This is awesome. Chapter 13 showed us that God uses the church loving each other. Remember that command, love one another as I have loved you. Uh, he, he uses the church loving each other to actually strengthen and to sustain our faith and to keep us going in hard times. But one of the questions that I have with that is, why would God use an imperfect group of sinners, the motley crew of the church, for such an important task as that? Surely, Jesus could have chosen a more efficient, more refined way. I think he does it for this reason, to remind us who the helper is. Sometimes our hearts are troubled and anxious because we are trying to be everywhere for everyone in every way possible. Good luck. No wonder you're exhausted. No wonder your hearts are troubled. Friends, God never intended for you to do that. God never intended for you or me to be the omnipresent Holy Spirit who can be omnipotent and all-powerful for every person. That's not your job. Now, this is not to, to be an excuse for us to do nothing and say, well, I don't have to love anybody because it's the Holy Spirit's job. He's the helper. That's not what I'm saying. But in our efforts to love and to obey the command to love one another and to serve one another and to sacrifice for each other's well-being, it reminds us that our job is to point each other to the helper, not pretend to be the Holy Spirit. And I gotta admit, that truth is a liberating truth. It's a liberating truth for the friend or the parent or the spouse or the pastor or the church member who cares for someone and loves them sincerely and loves them with great love, but who also sees their limitations and also sees their, their imperfections. I think it's then that we realize that prayer is not just a cop-out. Prayer is one of the most important things that we can do. Because God is our helper. So the Holy Spirit steps in for Jesus. Point number two, I think we can learn about the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit is with his disciples forever. Point number two, the Holy Spirit is with his disciples forever. Again, look at verse 16. He says, he will give you another helper to be with you for how long? Forever. 
Friends, in the new covenant, the spirit of God does not come and go, come and go. He's not just with us on our best days. He's not just with us when our life is falling apart. He is with us always and forever. We never have to wonder if he hears us. We never have to wonder if he knows what's going on in our life. We never have to ask if God is here. Is God here? Yes. And he's with us. He's with the Christian forever. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says it this way. I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Third thing that we learn about the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit dwells in us intimately and powerfully. The Holy Spirit dwells in us intimately and powerfully. Left to ourselves, Ephesians 2.1 says that our starting point is that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. In other words, we are blind, we are as blind and as unresponsive to God and the things of God as a dead person. And for that reason, Jesus explains in verse 17, the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. They're blind, they're dead. But For the remaining 11 disciples, something has happened. Jesus says, you know him, for he, the Holy Spirit, dwells with you and will be in you. Don't just skip over those prepositions that you see in verse 17, the prepositions of with and in. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, John 1.33 tells us that the Spirit of God descended and remained on Jesus. And so by walking with Jesus for three years, the Spirit of God that remained on Jesus dwelt with these disciples for three years. And so he can say to them, you know him for he dwells with you. But after Pentecost, which you can read about in Acts 2 this afternoon, the Spirit of God will not only continue to dwell with his people, but he will then take residence in his people. He will not just dwell with you, he will dwell in you. And he will dwell in every believer. If you become a Christian, his spirit dwells in you this way. Every Christian. The Holy Spirit in us makes the presence of God both immediate and direct, forever and wherever you are. It's not, and so part of what Jesus is saying is he doesn't want us to know facts about God. He wants us to know God intimately and powerfully. And it's by the means of the spirit living in us that we can know him intimately and powerfully. Because the, 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 the paraclete, the helper, is also the spirit of truth who teaches us, who strengthens us, who guides us and transforms us. Praise God. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Judas, not Iscariot, important detail, (laughs) said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me and does not keep my words, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So again, Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's going to the father. They're concerned, but he reminds them he's sending the spirit. And part of the ministry of the spirit is to make Jesus known to his followers. That's how Jesus can say to a group of distressed, troubled disciples in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is it that Jesus will come to them? By means of the spirit. In a very real sense, by the means of the spirit, he will make Jesus known to them and known to us. If, 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 uh, if in verse three, Jesus' coming points forward to the second coming of Jesus at the end of the ages. Verse 18 is Jesus coming to his disciples now after Pentecost by means of the Spirit. But there's a third way that Jesus comes. You've got to keep these straight. Verse 3, he comes in the second coming. Verse 18, he comes by the Spirit. The third way he comes is in verse 19. And and verse 19 is an encouragement that he will will visit the disciples, these 12 disciples, after he rises from the dead in bodily form, he will come to them before he then ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we know this because verse 19 says, in a little while, I will come to you. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus had made some pretty bold claims about himself. Claims that were difficult to accept. And one of those claims that he made over and over, it was that before it happened, he told his disciples, I will be betrayed, I will be killed, and on the third day, I will rise again. What do you do with a claim like that? If I told you that I would rise from the dead, you got three options according to C.S. Lewis. Either you are a liar, either you're a lunatic, or you are the Lord. And you're telling the truth. When the resurrected Jesus came and visited his disciples in bodily form, and when when 500 other eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus and ate with Jesus and touched Jesus and talked with Jesus, it was then that they would know and be encouraged that Jesus was telling the truth about himself, that he is God. That's what he says in verse 20. In that day, when he comes and visits them, post-resurrection, you will know that I am in my Father. They would understand the truth about Jesus. And because of hundreds of eyewitnesses, we too can know today. Again, Jesus is saying more than he wants us to know certain facts. Jesus wants us to know God. In verse 20, Jesus says, you will know that you are in me and I in you. He's talking about the intimacy of us being in that that close, intimate relationship with, with him and with God, the Father. Forgiven, 
reconciled to God, adopted into God's family. And he describes this in verse 23 in a a very powerful language. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and and we will come to him and make our home with him. Notice it's not just the spirit that dwells in us. He says that we, Jesus is saying, me, the son of God and the father, we will come to him and make our home with him. By the Spirit of God, the Father and the Son make their home with us. This is what God does in the life of the believer today, right now. God is not some distant deity. You can know him intimately, that he would be in you, dwelling with you. They would make their home with us. It's interesting though, notice, notice the other place that the word home is mentioned in chapter 14 is in verse two, when Jesus talks about heaven, this future heavenly home. Again, heaven is entering into the love, the contentment, the protection, and the joy that is in, in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within that relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is paradise. To be out of that is to be in hell. To be in that is to be in paradise and to be in heaven. If we love God, Jesus says, and trust him enough to keep his word, he and the Father through the Spirit will come to us and even in our pain and our suffering, he will give a taste of heaven on earth by us being in him and him being in us. So friends, if you're a Christian this morning and your heart toward God is cooled, maybe God feels distant and you long to know more of God's power and influence in your life, one of the things that you can do is to, is to do what Jesus talks about in verse 21. Take God at his word. Take the risk of stepping out in obedience. Not to earn his points, not to earn his love, but because you love him and because you trust him. And when you step out in obedience and you feel your need for him, it's then that God will manifest himself to you. He will show up and reveal himself to you as you trust him. And you'll experience more of his influence, more of his power, more of his presence in your life. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All right. One of the questions that we are wrestling with, even in this text this morning, is how can we know that the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are reliable? In fact, how can we know that the rest of the New Testament is reliable and trustworthy and true? One of the important texts that helps us understand the, the reliability of Scripture is this text in verse 25 and 26. Jesus made it clear that his words were God's word. Verse 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Okay, that's good. But after Jesus leaves and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, how would the apostles make an accurate record of what happened and what Jesus did and what he said? How would they remember? They didn't have tape recorders back then. Or phones, smartphones. (laughs) How would they keep an accurate record? Well, he tells us, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance 
all that I have said to you. Friends, the, the Bible is inspired by God. It means that it's God breathed. The Holy Spirit taught and carried the apostles along so that we can be confident that what we have in the pages of the Bible are the very words of God. And that's important for us for a number of reasons, but one is that Christian faith is not rooted in our feelings or perceptions. The good news is based upon the word of God. And because the word of God is true and trustworthy and reliable, we can have peace today. Look at verse 27. Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What wonderful words from our Savior. The peace that Jesus gives has three dimensions to it. There's a, there's a peace with God, a vertical peace with God. There's a horizontal peace with others. And then there's, a, there's an internal peace with self. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with self. And each aspect of this peace are interconnected and therefore must be pursued together. If you look for peace with self or peace with others without looking for peace with God, you will never find peace in yourself or peace with others. Not true peace. As one writer notes, the reason that the the, the three dimensions of peace must be pursued together as parts of a whole lies in the fact that they are that, 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 that the, the, the things that ties these three aspects of peace together, they are bound together by a common tie, the tie of sin. Sin makes us enemies with God. Sin makes us enemies with others. And sin makes us enemies of ourselves. For that reason, the peace that Jesus offers is not like the peace that the world gives. His peace is unique because he alone can go to the root cause of our problem of lacking peace. He can remove the problem and solve the problem of sin. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus, as the God-man, lived the perfect life on this earth that we have failed to live. So that when he went to the cross, he was actually dying the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. He died on the cross as our substitute in our place for our sin. And they put his body in a grave, and then on the third day, he rose again. And he lives today to offer this life, this forgiveness, and this peace. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you. It's not just enough to know these things in your head. You must respond to them. To receive this gift that he gives, you must turn from your sin. And trust in Jesus Christ alone. And in so doing, by faith, you can experience the peace with God that he offers today. And as a result of having peace with God, you can begin to experience what peace with others looks like and peace with yourself. So turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. He ends this section in verse 28. Look with me at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus in verse 28 says that, that they, they should rejoice that he's going to the Father, and he says that the Father is greater than I. Don't think of that as an ontological difference. Jesus and the Father are both equally God. What he means by greater than him is that the Father is in glory. He's going to say in, in chapter 17, verse 5, that in his incarnate state, Jesus has, has, has laid aside his glory. So right now, God the Father is greater than the Son in his incarnation, in his being in the flesh. But he is going back to the Father to, to, to be in the glory with the Father. And he's saying that that's good for the disciples. That's good for us so that he can send his spirit. So friends, again, let me ask you, is your heart troubled today? If it is, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in Jesus. And if you're struggling to trust God, then the encouragement we receive from God's word this morning is to cling to his word and to pray. Jesus endured the cross and went to the Father to then send us another helper, the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to God with our troubled hearts, when we come to him in our dark days, when we come to him in our, in our prayers, he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He will help us. He will strengthen us. He will guide us and he will protect us. That's what Jesus did when his heart was troubled. He went to the Father. And now as he heads to the cross, he knows that the ruler of this world is coming for him, the ruler of the world being Satan who wants to steal and kill and destroy. But as he heads to the cross, Jesus knows that it's at the cross that he will destroy the devil. Therefore, he can say he has no claim on him. In church, because Satan has no claim on Jesus, if you are in Christ today, Satan has no claim on you either. That means it's just as Jesus was able to do the Father's will, just as the Father commanded, so that the world may know that I, he loved the Father. We too, with the help of God, can do as he commands us. And with his help, we can love one another just as Christ has loved us. We can trust in God because he's trustworthy. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray.